Continue now with John Graves' poignant recollections of his favorite dog, Blue. Faithful, eager to please, eccentric, and even slightly nuts. Graves even bestowed the title, Nice Dog, both words capitalized, on Blue, a rare tribute by the master of a small Texas Hill Country ranch, a place he called Hardscrabble. You're listening to The Bookshelf here on Spokane Public Radio. What Blue amounted to, I guess, was a country nice dog, which in terms of utility is a notable cut above the same thing in the city. These dogs stay strictly at home without being tied or penned, announce visitors, keep varmints and marauding dogs and unidentified nocturnal boogers away, cope with snakes, Blue, by the way, after one bad fanging that nearly killed him, abandoned his dam's tactic of headlong assault and would circle a snake raising hell until I came to kill it or to call him off if it was harmless. Watch over one's younger children and are middling to good help at shoving stock through a loading chute or from one pen to another, though less help in pastures where the aiming point may be a single gate in a long stretch of fence and judgment is required. Some learn simple daily herding tasks like bringing in milk cows at evening, although I've observed that much of the time those tasks involve an illusion on the part of the dog, and perhaps his owner, that he's making cows or goats or sheep do something when actually they have full intention of doing it on their own, unforced. Or the whole thing may be for fun, as it was with one old cowman I knew who had an ancient collie named Babe. When visitors came to sit with the old man on his porch, he would at some point level a puzzled blue glare across the pasture and say in conversational tones, I declare, babe, it looks like that old mare's busted out of the corral again. Maybe you'd better bring her in. And babe would rise and go do as he had been bidden. And the visitors would be much impressed, unless they happened to be aware that it was the one sole thing he could do and that the mare was in on it, too. On the whole, to be honest, Blue was pretty poor at herding, even by lax standards, too eager and exuberant and only occasionally certain of what it was we were trying to do. But he was controllable by single words and gestures, and, like his mother, unafraid. And in his later years, when I knew his every tendency, such as nipping goats, I could correct mistakes before he made them, so that he was often of some help. He was even more often comic relief, as when a shooted cow turned fighty and loaded him into the trailer, instead of he, her. Or when a young bull, too closely pressed, kicked him into a thick clump of scrub elm, where he landed upside down and lay stuck with his legs still running in the air. When I went over and saw he wasn't hurt and started laughing at the way he looked, he started laughing too, at least in his own way. For a sense of humor and of joy was the other side of that puppyish clowning streak which he always retained, but which turned him less defensive with time. The nervousness that went with it never quite left him either, but grew separate from the clowning, ritualizing itself most often in a weird habit he had of grinning and slobbering and clicking his teeth together when frustrated or perplexed. He regularly did this, for instance, when friends showed up for visits and brought their own dogs along. Knowing he wasn't supposed to attack those dogs as he did strays, Blue was uncertain what else to do with them. 
So he would circle them stiff-legged, wagging his stub, and usually trying to mount them, male or female, small or large, and after being indignantly rebuffed, would walk about popping his jaws and dribbling copious saliva. I expect some of those visiting friends thought him a very strange dog, and maybe in truth he was. He was a bouncing, bristling, loud-mouthed watchdog, bulkily impressive enough that arriving strangers would most often stay in their cars until I came out to call him off. Unlike Pan, he bore them no real hostility and never bit anyone, though I believe that if any person or thing had threatened one of us, those big white teeth would have been put to good use. Mainly, unfamiliar people disconcerted him and he wanted nothing to do with them unless I was around and showed myself receptive, at which point he was wont to start nuzzling their legs and hands like a great overgrown pup demanding caresses. Once, when the pickup was ailing, I left it at a garage in town and mooched a ride home with a friend whose car Blue did not know. No one in the family was there, and when we drove up to the house there was no sign of Blue but then I saw him peering furtively around a corner of the porch, much as his mother had eyed me from those shin-oak bushes long before. With his size, clean markings, silky thick coat, broad head, alert eyes, and usual mien of grave dignity, he was quite a noble-looking fellow. Having him along was often a social asset with strangers, even if it could turn out to be the opposite if something disturbed him and he went into his jaw-popping, drooling phase. One day when he was young and we were still living outside Fort Worth, I was apprehended in that city for running a red light, though I thought I had seen no light at all when I drove through the intersection. I explained this to the arresting officer, a decent type, and together we went back and watched the damn thing run through six or eight perfectly sequenced changes from red to yellow to green and back again. Blue watched with us, and attuned to the situation, accepted a pat from the cop with an austere but friendly smile. Against pregnant silence, I said with embarrassment that I guessed my eyes were failing faster than I had thought, accepted the appropriate summons, and went on my disgruntled way. When I got home that afternoon, my wife said the officer had telephoned. More decent even than I had known, he had watched the light for a while longer by himself and had finally caught it malfunctioning, and he told Jane I could go get the ticket canceled. She thought me off in the Cedar Hills and believed there was some mistake. Did he have a sheepdog in the back of the pickup, she asked. No, ma'am, said Blues till then, secret admirer. That great big beautiful animal was sitting right up on the front seat with him. We spent a tremendous lot of time together over the years, Blue and I, around the house and barn and pens, wandering on the place, batting about in a pickup, his pickup more than mine, for he spent much of each day inside it or beneath, even when it was parked by the house, or at farm work in the fields. When young, he would follow the tractor around and around as I plowed or harrowed or sowed, but later he learned to sit under a tree and watch the work's progress in comfort, certain I was not escaping from him, though sometimes when he got bored he would bounce out to meet the tractor as it neared him and would try to lead it home. Fond of the whole family and loved by all, he'd go along with the girls to swim at the creek or when they went horseback across the hills, good protection for them, and good company. 
but he needed a single main focus, and I was it, so completely at times that I felt myself under surveillance. No imperfectly latched door missed his notice if I was indoors and he was out, and he could open either one by shoving or by pulling it with his teeth, as permanent marks on some of them still testify. Failing to get in, he would ascertain as best he could by peering in windows or otherwise just where I was located inside, and then would lie down by the exterior wall closest to that spot, even if it put him in the full blast of a January norther. At one friend's house in town that he and I used to visit often, he would, if left outside, go through the attached garage to a kitchen door at odds with its jam and seldom completely shut. Easing through it, he would traverse the breakfast room in a hall, putting one foot before another in tense slow motion, would slink behind a sofa in the living room, and using concealment as craftily as any old infantryman, would sometimes be lying beside my chair before I even knew he was in. More usually, we'd watch his creeping progress while pretending not to notice, and after he got where he was headed, I would give him a loud mock scolding, and he'd roll on his back and clown, knowing he was home free and wouldn't be booted back out, as sometimes happened when he was shedding fat ticks or stinking from a recent battle with some polecat. But there were places he wouldn't go with me, most notable among them the bee yard, his first apicultural experience having been his definite last. It happened one early spring day when I was helping a friend check through a neglected hive someone had given him, and Blue tagged along with us. The hive body and supers were badly gummed up with the tree sap propolis that bees use for glue and chinking. The combs in the frames were crooked and connected by bridge wax and tore when we took them out, and on that cool day all thirty or forty thousand workers were at home and ready to fight. They got under our veils and into all the cracks in our attire, and those that didn't achieve entry just rammed their stings home through two or three layers of cloth. They also found Blue, a prime target for apian rage, since they hate all hairy things, probably out of ancestral memory of hive-raiding bears. With maybe a hundred of them hung whining in his coat and stinging when they found skin, he tried to squeeze between my legs for protection and caused me to drop a frame covered with bees, which augmented the assault. Shortly thereafter, torn between mirth and pain, we gave up and slapped the hive back together and lit out at a hard run with blue thirty yards out in front and clouds of bees flying escort. And after that, whenever he saw me donning the veil and firing up my smoker, he'd head in the other direction. He did work out a method of revenge, though, which he used for the rest of his life, despite scoldings and other discouragements. Finding a place where small numbers of bees were coming for some reason, a spot on the lawn where something sweet had been spilled, perhaps, or a lime-crusted dripping faucet whose flavor in their queer way they liked, he would stalk it with his special tiptoeing slink and then loudly snapped bees from the air one by one as they flew, apparently not much minding the occasional stings he got on his lips and tongue. I suppose my scoldings were less severe than they ought to have been. It was a comical thing to watch. And for that matter, he got few bees in relation to their huge numbers. Unlike another beekeeper friend's Dalmatian, afflicted with similar feelings, who used to sit all day directly in front of a hive, chomping at everything that flew out, and had to be given away. Maybe Blue considered bees varmints, 
he took his guardianship of the house premises dead seriously and missed few creatures that came around. Along with clowning, I guess this was the best thing he did. Except for the unfortunate armadillos, which he had learned to crunch, the mortality inflicted was low after Pan's death, as I've said, for most could escape through the net yard fence that momentarily blocked Blue's pursuit, and few of them cared to stay and dispute matters except an occasional big squalling coon. With these, we did have some rousing fine midnight fights, though I'd better not further sully my humanitarian aura, if any remains, by going into detail. During the time when cantaloupes and roasting ears were coming ripe and most attractive to coons, I'd leave the garden gate open at dark, and Blue would go down there during the night on patrol. There was sometimes a question as to whether a goodly squad of coons given full license could have done half as much damage to garden crops as the ensuing battles did, but there was no question at all about whether the procedure worked. After only two or three brawls each year, word would spread around canny coonum that large, hairy danger lurked in the grave's corn patch, and they would come no more, much to Blue's disappointment. I talked to him quite a bit, for the most part childishly or joshingly as one does talk to beasts, and while I'm not idiot enough to think he understood any of it beyond a few key words and phrases, he knew my voice's inflections and tones, and by listening took meaning from them, if meaning was there to be had, responding with a grin, a sober stare, melting affection, or some communicative panting according to what seemed to be right. Like most dogs that converse with humans, he was a thorough yes type, honoring my every point with agreement. Nice dogs are ego boosters and have been so since the dim red dawn of things. I could leave him alone and untethered at the place for three or more days at a time with dry food and a bucket under shelter and water to be had at the cattle troughs. Neighbors half a mile away have told me that sometimes when the wind was right they could hear him crooning softly, wolf-like, lonely, but he never left. When I came back he would be at the yard gate waiting, and as I walked up toward the house he would go beside me leaping five and six feet straight up in the air in pure and utter celebration, whining and grunting maybe, but seldom more. He saved loud barks for strangers and snakes and threatening varmints and such. Last winter I slept in the house instead of on the screen porch we shared as night quarters during much of each year, unless, as often, he wanted to be outside on guard, and I hadn't moved back out by that March night when he disappeared. He had been sleeping on a horse blanket on a small open side porch facing south, and I'd begun to notice that sometimes he would still be abed and pleasantly groggy when I came out at daybreak. He was fattening a bit also, and those eyes were dimmer that once had been able to pick me out of a jostling sidewalk crowd in town and track me as I came toward the car. Because, like mine, his years were piling up, it was a sort of further bond between us. He ate a full supper that evening and barked with authority at some coyotes singing across the creek, and in the morning was gone. I had to drive two counties north that day to pick up some grapevines and had planned to take him along. 
When he didn't answer my calling, I decided he must have a squirrel in the elms and cedars across the house branch, where he would often sit silent and taut for hours, staring up at a chattering treed rodent, oblivious to summonings and to everything else. It was a small sin that I permitted him at his age. If I wanted him, I could go and search him out and bring him in, for he was never far. But that morning, it didn't seem to matter, and I took off without him certain he'd be at the yard gate when I drove in after lunch, as he had invariably been over the years that had mounted so swiftly for both of us. Except that he wasn't. Nor did a tour of his usual squirrel grounds yield any trace, or careful trudges up and down the branch, or a widening week-long search by myself and my wife and kids that involved every brush pile and crevice we could find within a half mile or more of home, where he might have followed some coon or ringtail and then gotten stuck or been bitten in a vein by a rattler just out of its long winter's doze and full of rage and venom, or watching for the tight down spiral of feeding buzzards, or driving every road in the county twice or more and talking with people who, no, had not seen any dogs like that, or even any bitches in heat that might have passed through recruiting, or ads run in the paper and notices taped to the doors of groceries and feed mills, though these did produce some false hopes that led me up to 30 miles away in vain. Even his friend the two-bit cat, at intervals for weeks, would sit and meow toward the woods in queer and futile lament. I ended fairly certain of what I had surmised from the start, that Blue lay dead from whatever cause beneath some thick heap of bulldozed brush or in one of those deep holes, sometimes almost caves, that groundwater eats out under the limestone ledges of our hills. For in country as brushy and wrinkled and secret as this, we can't have found all such places round about, even fairly close. Or maybe I want to believe this because it has finality. And maybe he'll still turn up, like those long-lost animals you read about in children's books and sometimes in newspaper stories. He won't. And dogs are nothing but dogs, and I know it better than most. And all this was for a queer and nervous old crossbreed that couldn't even herd stock right. Nor was there anything humanly unique about the loss or about the emptiness that comes in the searching's wake, which comes sooner or later to all people foolish enough to give an animal space in their lives. But if you're built to be such a fool, you are. And if the animal is to you what Blue was to me, the space he leaves empty is big. It is partly filled for us now by a successor, an old English pup with much promise, sharp and alert, wildly vigorous but responsive and honest, puppy absurd but with an underlying gravity that will in time, I think, prevail. There's nothing nervous about him. He has a sensitivity that could warp in that direction if mishandled, but won't if I can help it. Nor does he show any fear beyond healthy puppy caution, and in the way he looks at cows and goats and listens to people's words, I see clearly that he may make a hell of a dog, quite possibly better than Blue, which is not, as I said, saying much. But he isn't Blue, and the dome shape of his head under my hand as I sit reading in the evenings, I can still feel that broader, silkier head, and through his half-boisterous, half-bashful, glad-morning hello, 
I still glimpse Blue's clown grin and crazy leaps. I expect such intimate remembrance will last a good long while, for I waited the better part of a lifetime to own a decent dog and finally had him, and now don't have him anymore. And I resolved that when this new one is grown and more or less shaped in his ways, I'm going to get another pup to raise beside him and maybe later a third, because I don't believe I want to face so big a dose of that sort of emptiness again. We go now to chapter 12, which John Graves entitled, Some Chickens I Have Known. As an abject devotee of country how-to-do-it books, I possess several volumes with titles like The Home Chicken Flock, Starting Right with Poultry, and Chickens for Fun and Profit. As their names indicate, these are earnest, homely treatises aimed at backyarders and small farm owners, and I've read them all with careful interest, the careful interest that we self-sufficiency enthusiasts, however impure, reserve for such material. I therefore know a certain amount about hen yards and laying houses and dropping pits and the spacing of roost poles and over a period of time have acquired or constructed a few bits of relevant hardware like waterers, feeders, brood coops, and so on. But somehow, despite good intentions formed while reading beside a winter fire, the use I've made of this information and equipment has been incomplete and fitful and not in general zealous. The notion has sometimes whispered itself to me that maybe I'm just not a chicken fun and profit type. Yet we've always had some chickens around, half wild for the most part, and quite aside from enjoying what good, rich, red-yoked eggs we can find and an occasional free-ranging fryer, we have come to count on them as an integral part of our surroundings. I seldom consciously notice the crowing of roosters at dawn, for instance, but when I wake up somewhere else, I consciously note its absence and miss it. And over the years, the view from my office window here at the rear of the barn would have been a poorer one without periodic glimpses of alfresco cockfights or of some old game biddy with her chicks as she chases and spears and dismembers small quarry of various sorts, sharing out bugs and tarantula legs and lizard entrails and clucking with crazy glee to indicate how very nutritious they are. What I know I'm not is a scientific poultry management aficionado. I had a couple of books on that subject, too, bought by error and given away soon after I had explored their contents. Polemicists have declaimed in print against the inhumanity of confining birds by the scores of thousands to mesh-floored cages from the moment of their miraculous emergence from the egg to that dark time when they were efficiently killed and plucked and gutted and shunted to market as corpses pallid with fat, certified disease-free because of the antibiotics they've gobbled up with their mash and have inveighed against keeping laying hens in much the same fashion, bumfoozling them into extra egg production with eternal electric light. I've nothing to add on this subject, maybe in part because one of the nicest things about chickens is it's rather hard to get emotionally involved with them, and inhumanity toward the idiotic breeds of fowl that have practically been manufactured for such industrial use, if it is inhumanity, hardly seems worth getting worked up about. Not that I wouldn't rather eat the other kind of chickens and the other kind of eggs, but that's for empirical reasons, because they're healthier and taste a whole lot better. 
My objections to participation in such poultry management practices are also empirical, based on two or three swatches of clear-eyed observation. One such occurred not long after World War II, when with a friend from college days I took a tour around Texas to look up old companions and to find out how they had weathered the hectic years since graduation. By and large, we found that those we could locate had weathered them much as we had, in other words, with emotional development arrested as of circa 1941, and with a degree of confusion as to what all the intervening military brouhaha had meant to them, if anything, but with an exceeding willingness to drink beer and strong waters and to swap war stories. The zigzag trip lasted for weeks, stretched from the high plains to the Gulf Coast by way of various ranches, honky-tonks, large and dignified homes, Guadalupe river-bottom fishing shacks, motel rooms, and other stopping points. And at one stage we conferred the blessing of our presence on two old classmates, married by then and less confused than most of us, or at least it first seemed, who had allied themselves against the future by acquiring and modernizing a broiler operation on two or three acres of land not far from the shining towers of Waco. For that time, I suppose it was a fair-sized endeavor, with a flow-through population of perhaps nine or ten thousand birds funneling in at one end as downy chicks, and out the other as meat. Big and sophisticated in comparison to the chicken farms that during the Depression and on briefly into post-war years constituted a retirement dream for multitudes of thirty-year military types and other pensioners, it was a diminutive forerunner of the enormous corporate operations which today have driven most individual owners out of the poultry game. It occupied some long tin sheds whose grayed roofs shimmered under the Texas sun and from whose raised flap windows flowed the massed gobble of those thousands of perverted and nervous birds, as well as the massed pungency of their droppings. The weather was hot, without much wind, and if an instrument for measuring the intensity of odor exists, as it may well for all I know, and it had been focused on that operation, or at any point within the small stucco, unair-conditioned house that had come with the property and was now sheltering both our friends, plus wives, plus one small baby, it most certainly would have exploded. Nor, in my scant experience, is it possible to ignore or get used to the scent of chicken manure as one can ignore and sometimes like, for instance, equivalent emanations from horses and cows, or even according to the biased testimony of some pig-fancying friends of mine, from swine. From poignant memories of his favorite dog named Blue, and now to chickens, John Graves continues his sometimes acerbic, sometimes downright funny observations about various denizens of the animal kingdom. Join us next time on The Bookshelf as Graves explains his preference for wild and raunchy chickens over fat and motherly ones. The book is from a limestone ledge. The University of Texas Press is the publisher. Vern Windham is executive producer of the program. 